morning. The reading this morning is going to be taken from Luke chapters 12 and 13. you find the reading on your sheets in front of you. Let's read then. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed, or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the, ear, in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that can do no more. And then moving down to verses 54 to, six to 56. He said to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately say, you say, it's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? Um, Luke 13, verses 1 to 9. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but didn't find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig round it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Father, the passage we have in front of us in Luke 13 is on the surface very strange and hard to understand. We do believe that all of your word is inspired by your spirit. We believe that your word is like a two-edged sword. We believe that your word is the word of life and the word that convicts and instructs. Please, would you teach us, O Lord, and open our eyes so that as we look into your word, we would see marvelous things. And you would encourage us, you would rebuke us, you would nourish us. And we dare to ask that you would change us, that we would not be the same people when we leave than when we walked into this school hall this morning. Please help us, I pray. Amen. Luke 13, please. During his 27 years, 27 years of internment on Robben Island, Nelson Mandela told all his fellow inmates one poem that he had committed to memory in his youth. It was a poem by W.E. Henley that we know well. It's called Invictus. We know in particularly the last verse especially well, the last stanza. Let me read it to you. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. 
might be familiar to you. Henley wrote those words in about 1875 or thereabouts, reflecting on his life. He was a young boy, and because of tuberculosis that he was struggling with, he, he lost uh, a lot of his mobility, and he struggled with uh, health issues for the majority of his life. And he wrote this poem that encapsulated his understanding of the world at that time. And really, it's a brilliant verse that summarizes the worldview of the modern age, but written hundreds of years ago. The poem captures this essence that, remember, friends, there used to be a time when we thought about there being a straight gate to life. There used to be a time when everybody agreed there was heaven and hell. There was a time when people understood that there is a God who judges the world at the end of history, and that law and what is held against us, what is for us and what against us will be written on a scroll. There was a time when we thought God was in charge, but things have changed. And so now it matters not how straight the gate. It doesn't matter how charged the punishment's the scroll. I am in charge. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. It's a brilliant, well-known piece of poetry that really encapsulates the modern world's understanding of future and of the present, of judgment or the lack of it. I'm in charge. There's no God that I need to be concerned with. In this passage, verses 1 to 9 of chapter 13 of Luke's Gospel, there is one key word that summarizes what the passage is about. That as I prayed on the surface, it appears very obscure. It did to me till about Thursday. Jesus wants to teach us about this one word that we will not understand, especially if we're not Christians. It's the word repentance. It's the word repentance. Jesus wants us to be in no doubt what repentance means, and so he explains it, he illustrates it. Now back to the realm of poetry. Poetry, as a way of encapsulating uh, human questions and the human spirit like nothing else does, and normally it's short, that's why I like it at least. So repentance, you can go to Lord Byron, and Lord Byron would say, well, only the weak repent. You can only repent if you're a weak person. So he would disagree with Jesus and he would say only the weak repent. You go to another equally good poet and playwright called William Shakespeare. He wrote, in the words of one of his characters, I'll repent and that suddenly. I shall be out of heart shortly and then I shall have no strength to repent. Byron is saying weak people repent. Shakespeare is saying, uh-uh-uh. No, we wouldn't use that word, it'd be more flowery. He would say, knoweth, the strong man repenteth, and things like that. Shakespeare says it takes great strength to repent. Strong people repent, and when they repent, it takes so much energy, they're then weary. Two conflicting views. The strong man, he would never repent. The weak man repents. But when the strong man does repent, it takes all of his energies. Just the world of poetry. Jesus says there is no way that you can enter the gate. There's no way that you can know what it means to be a disciple of mine, a follower of mine. There's no way that you can get to know me unless you understand this one word, repentance. It's absolutely key. It's central. It's foundational to what it means to be a Christian. That's what we need to look at, chapter 13, verses 1 to 9. First of all, Jesus tells us about our need for repentance, our need for repentance. One of the reasons for having these uh, three readings is because from chapter 12, Jesus has been preaching one sermon in all probability. 
And it's not been too obscure for us to see that a repeated theme throughout this long sermon. It's Jesus is saying, there is a time in the future, there is a time to come, when the scroll will be opened up. There will be the reality of future judgment that you need to understand, not history in terms of a narrow angled lens, but you need to see it in all its eternity. Chapter 12, verses 2 to 4. There is a time coming where everything that's hidden will be uncovered. There will be a time when everything that's done in the dark will be seen in the light. And it will be declared from the housetops, from the rooftops. Those verses scare me. They're a reality check that burst our bubble about all things that are temporary. Verse 54 of chapter 12. There is a cloud rising in the sky and you think that you can understand it. If you understand the beginning and the end of history, you should be able to interpret what is happening in the world says Jesus to his disciples and to the crowds. And then as he is still preaching, chapter 13, verse 1, there is a people who come along and interrupt what he's saying. One of the translations literally says, Jesus was interrupted during this sermon. And what do they say? They say, newsflash. Jesus, have you heard about these two events, verse 1 and 2? Have you heard about this tragedy in days before the internet where news was shared verbally? Verse 2, did you hear what Pilate, that nasty piece of work, did to your co-compatriots uh, in Jerusalem? They were Galileans going up to the temple in Jerusalem to worship God, the God of our fathers. Did you hear what Pilate did? He killed a bunch of them. He slaughtered them. And then he mixed up their blood with the blood that they were going to offer to their God. Did you hear about that, Jesus? Jesus, did you hear about the other thing that happened? Over in Siloam when there was a tower and 18 people were killed in an instant when the tower fell on them. Did you hear about that? What do you think about that? So Jesus' sermon is interrupted and underneath these questions that come is a question that we all ask when atrocities come. It doesn't matter whether it's planes going into big buildings in America. It doesn't matter if it's gunmen going into a theater in Paris. It doesn't matter if it's a red bus being blown up on the streets of London. It doesn't matter if it's a friend of yours that's tragically got an illness that's terminal. We all ask these questions that is asked to Jesus' ears in this instant. Why them? Why not me? Are they worse than me? Am I worse than them? Do you see the questions that Jesus gets asked? Verse 2. He answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners? Jesus asking them the question than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way. Verse 4. Do you think they were worse offenders than those who died in Jerusalem? In other words, Jesus is going straight for their hearts as he does throughout his earthly ministry and says, I know how you feel. I know what you think. I know what's going on in your mind. Isn't it a strange response from Jesus, though? Jesus, did you hear about the Galileans who were slaughtered by Pilate, that nasty piece of work? You're expecting Jesus to, to kind of denounce Pilate publicly and said, yeah, he's terrible. God's judgment's going to fall on him. He needs to repent. But what does Jesus say? He doesn't say that. He doesn't give us comfort when a public leader kind of denounces or decries an act of atrocity or terrorism like uh, presidential people or parliamentary people do. Jesus says, you need to repent. 
It's really striking, isn't it? Verse 2, he does not comment about what Pilate has done. He does not comment on the tower as it falls. In both instances, Jesus' response is, here's an appropriate response to tragedy. Here's an appropriate response to hardship and suffering and heartbreak. You need to repent. You need to repent. I mean, nobody was thinking that the people who died in the temple who were killed by Pilate were worse sinners. They were expecting Pilate to get it with both barrels from Jesus. But Jesus says, you know the appropriate response to this news? You need to repent. You need to repent. You need to repent always, every day, in every way. The appropriate response is repentance. Luther, like Jesus says, all of life as a Christian disciple, as a Christian follower, as someone who says that they follow Jesus, all of life is marked out by repentance. Repentance when bad things happen. Repentance when good things happen too. In uh, Romans 2 verse 4 it says, Or do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? Here's Jesus saying when bad things happen, the appropriate response is repentance. Here's the writer to the Romans, Paul, and he's saying when good things happen, do you know what you should do? You should repent too. When good things happen, you repent. When bad things happen, you repent too. And Jesus in this passage in Luke 13, 1-9 is saying nothing new. If you wanted to sum up his ministry, you could go to Mark 1.15 and Mark writes down from the lips of Jesus, the kingdom of God is here, Repent. That's a one-sentence summary of the ministry of the Lord Jesus. Jesus sends out people to the harvest field. He sends out people to the world. You know what he says? Go and tell people to repent. The first sermon in Acts 2, after the Lord Jesus has died and gone back to heaven, there's a really long sermon. There's lots of people crammed into a room in Jerusalem. And uh, the apostle speaks, and people are cleaved. They're cut to the heart. They're cut in two by the Holy Spirit. And then they say, what do we do? How do we respond to this message? Repent. So Jesus is saying nothing new here, that each one of us need to repent. Repent when bad things happen. Repent when good things happen. Repent when God speaks to you by his spirit. Repent. Repentance is the gate to everything. Repentance is the key to everything. Repentance is the foundation to everything. Repent. We all need to repent. Are you happy this morning? You need to repent. Are you sad this morning? You need to repent too. Are you kind of middling? Well, you need to repent too. Everyone, says Jesus, you need to repent, regardless of your feeling, regardless of your status or age or life situation. Repentance is key. All of life is repentance. Now, that makes no sense at all unless you understand what repentance is. And that's what we need to do now. We all need to repent. But what's the nature of repentance? What does it look like? What is it? Let's try and get a handle on what Jesus is saying that repentance actually really is. You go to the high street and you say, hey, what does repentance mean? And I'll give you a cookie if you get the right or the wrong answer. People may say, well, repentance, I've never heard of the thing. It's an old-fashioned word. I need a dictionary, please. They might say, oh, repentance, that sounds to me like you're kind of beating yourself up. You've got a low self-image, so you need to repent. Someone else might say, well, it's, uh, 
it's kind of self-loathing. It's when you feel guilty you've had your 14th ice cream of the day, and rightly you should repent and, and go for a run. That's not what repentance is. Jesus is operating in these verses with a completely different understanding of the world. It's not you're a captain of your own ship. It's not you're a master of your own fate. Jesus sees the world completely differently. Repentance, living a life of repentance, is understanding two things. It's understanding what we deserve. It's understanding what we deserve. And second thing, is understanding what we receive in Jesus, what God gives us in Christ. These two realities are foundational to living a life of repentance. Repentance is not kind of vague. It's not a general feeling. It's these two concrete realities being lived out in your life, an understanding of what we deserve, an understanding of what God gives us in Jesus. You can't repent, number one, unless you understand what you deserve. We all, listen carefully, we all deserve a tower to fall on us. We all deserve a tower to fall on us. Verse 5, Jesus, when he's responding to this news flash about the Tower of Siloam, says, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, verse 5, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. We all deserve a tower to fall on us. They were no worse than the crowd who did not get crushed by the tower. They were no worse than the crowd that ran away as the bricks were beginning to fall, as the stones fell from the sky, because Jesus is assuming a completely different understanding of the world. There's a number one uh, world best-selling book Harold Kushner wrote, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. It sold millions of copies years ago. Now, underneath that uh, dust cover, within the pages of that book, there is a huge, it's what's called a presupposition, there's a huge understanding of the world that there are good people and bad things should not happen to them. That's the uh, underpinning kind of understanding of that book that God owes us a good life. God owes us uh, benevolence. God owes us kindness. He owes us our best life now. So, bad things should not happen to good people. Because if there's a God, he's, he's a cosmic Father of Christmas who gives good gifts, whether we are morally good or bad. There are some people in the world, sure, there are some people in the world who deserve bad things to happen of them. Pol Pot, he's one. Chairman Mao, he's another one. Hitler, he's sure, he needs bad things to happen to him as well. But bad things should not happen to good people. Bad things should happen to bad people. Jesus operates on a completely different assumption. He doesn't assume that at all. Listen carefully. Jesus says the problem, the philosophical problem in the world is not when bad things happen to bad people or bad things happen to good people. Here's the big problem, says Jesus. The big problem is not the problem of suffering. The big problem is that good things happen at all. The big thing is that good things happen at all. Why should God give us anything? Why should God be kind to us? Why should God be benevolent to us? Why should God give us good things at all, says Jesus? That's the operating principle that he's working on. Why does God allow such little suffering? That's the big question that no one wants to wrestle with. We live in a universe where good normally follows good. If you work hard, you receive benefit for your pay if you're employed. If you're a sluggard, you receive 
the just consequences of nothing. But we live in a world where God has ordered it so that normally good follows good. Evil follows evil. So the real problem is not why is there suffering, it's why is there good at all. Jesus is operating on the presupposition, on the understanding that there is a God who rules the world. He is loving, he is kind, he is all-powerful, he is all-knowing. And yet, we are not good. We are rebels. We are rebels who have turned our back on God, who have not given him a second thought. And yet, in our arrogance and pride, when we want something from God, we expect him to, to provide what we need. We can live our lives without giving him a second thought, can't we? And yet when we have a need, we pray. We want God to come up trumps for us. We want God to turn up. We live radically self-centered lives. And so Henley is right. We live very often with the understanding that we are the master of our fate. We are the captain of our souls. But if God has made us, if he has created us, if there's a creator God at all, we owe him everything. And yet we treat him as if he doesn't exist. We owe him the first place in our lives. We owe him the throne of our hearts, number one in our allegiances, and yet we don't give him a second thought very often. And then we have the audacity to say, please will you provide for me this? Please will you help me out of this situation? Please will you help my friend? Please will you provide for my need? You are the one who owes me comfort and security, but I'm not going to give you a second thought. I don't want to know you until there's a need in my life. Jesus says, until you see what you deserve for not giving the cosmic king of the universe a second thought, until you see that you deserve a tower to fall on you because of God's justice, until you see that, you won't be able to live a life of repentance. It's not a problem of evil or suffering in the world, says Jesus. The problem is it's a problem of good. Consider what we owe God as our Father and Maker and our closest friend in Jesus, and yet how little we think of him. We need to understand what we deserve. Secondarily, we need to understand. We have to see, we have to grasp, we have to be thrilled by and captivated by what God gives us in Jesus. We need to understand what we deserve. We deserve a tower to fall on us, but we also need to see what God gives us in Jesus. You've got to be thrilled by it. Look at verses 6 to 9. We have this lovely parable for anyone who loves gardening. If you love concrete, you won't get it. But for us gardeners, us Monty Dons, we should be able to understand what's going on. Verses 6 to 9 is a parable of a man who had a fig tree. It's not producing the goods. And so the owner wants it gone. But there's someone with green fingers who says, give me another chance, give me some more time. I want to fertilize it, I want to mulch it, I want to water it, I want to stake it, I want to clear everything around it that's casting a shadow on it so it gets as much sunlight as possible. Give me a little bit more time. And I think there'll be fruit from this fig tree. It's not hard to work out who's who, is it? We've got Jesus as the lovely divine gardener who's longing for more time to see fruit of repentance and love for his father who owns the fig tree. And we're the trees. We're the trees that Jesus longs to cultivate, longs to see fruit of love and repentance. 
And yet God is saying, I will give you a limited time, Jesus. A small amount of time for you to give, verse 8, another opportunity for fruit to grow. It's a picture of Jesus' heart and compassion speaking to his Father. If they repent, if they turn, they won't receive what they deserve. But I will take what they deserve on the cross, ultimately, says Jesus. I want to save them, says Jesus. I want to rescue them. I will give my life for them. I will do whatever it takes for fruit in keeping with repentance to grow in these people's hearts and minds. Living a life of repentance, you've got to understand what you deserve. You deserve God's judgment, a tower to fall on you. And yet in Jesus, he longs to give us more time in keeping with repentance. There's no better illustration, I don't think, of what repentance really is outside of the parable of the prodigal son. I think you know the story. The man had two sons. The youngest son says, I wish you were dead. So to hurry that process up, please give me my inheritance now. And he went and he squandered it. He spent it on everything the world had to offer of wine, women, and song. And then he came to his senses when he was eating pig food. And he says, I know what I'll do. I'm going to throw myself on my father's mercy. I'm going to go back to my father. And I'll say, please, will you treat me as one of your hired hands, as one of your servants? And he came to his father, and his father ran to him, taking all the disgrace that that would mean. And the son said to the father, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I'm not worthy. Please treat me as one of your hired hands. But the father said, kill a calf. Bring the finest clothes. Bring a ring and put it on his finger. Because my son, who I thought was dead, is alive. Let's have a massive party. It's the youngest son coming back to the father, but then there's the older son. And the older son was very, very upset because everything that was left over was his to inherit. The younger son had received his money, his goods, his property, so to speak. And everything now that the father was spending to welcome his younger son back, his brother back, was out of his pocket, so to speak. So he was grumbling, he was unhappy. He deserved to cut him off But the youngest son repented. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Please hire me like one of your hired hands. And then there's this huge party. The parable of the older brother who's resenting his younger son returning, losing his inheritance in the future, is a brilliant picture of the gospel and what it means to bring a life of of living a, a life of repentance. In the gospel, we have an older brother. We have an older brother who's Jesus, who has all the resources of all of human history, has all the wealth of the kingdom of heaven, all the wealth of the heavens at his disposal, and yet he says, you are not worthy to be called my son, but I will call you a son. I'm not going to treat you as you deserve. I'm not going to treat you as a hired hand. You can come and be welcomed into my kingdom. You can have a seat of honor. You can have clothes to wear of regal proportions. You can have a ring put on your finger indicating a new status. You are welcomed in, and I will pay everything. I will pay all the costs. We have an old brother who paid everything so that we can be seated at his table. I will run the race for you. I will endure the cross for you. I will despise the shame of the world for you as I'm hung naked on the cross. I will do all that for you, and I'm your older brother, and I love you, and I love that you've returned. I love that my father has called you back. I love the fact that my father's run out and sought you 
in the gospel. If you understand these two truths, then you're beginning to live a life of repentance. You see what you deserve and you see what you cannot earn, but God has given you in Jesus. Someone who understands these two truths, that we're not worthy to be called sons of God, and yet because of Jesus we are heirs, we're adopted, we're chosen, we're called. When you see those two truths, we can begin to pray and live a life of repentance. Now I thought when writing this, this is a little bit kind of abstract. I'm in danger of just kind of leaving people thinking, okay, but so what? Here's a test for you. One of the tests of saying, if you're a Christian here this morning, if you are living, like I seek to, a life of repentance, is not when bad things happen to you. The litmus test, as we try to earth this, living a life of repentance, understanding what we deserve, understanding that we've not earned, but we've been given into Christ Jesus, is how we deal with good things. That's the test. When you get a promotion at work, do you say, well, it's about time. I've been waiting for this for ages. Here's my new company car. Here's my new set of wheels. Now I can go on this holiday. When you get a compliment, well, it's about time someone noticed me. Thanks a lot. I've been working here for ages. I've been taking out these chairs for donkeys. Yes, I've been playing this guitar for a long time. So it seems no one said thanks. Now you finally said thank you. When you get a compliment, when you get a reward, when you get a good thing in your life, that is the test of whether you're living a life of repentance. If you say, well, this is just rewards for all my hard work, this is about time I was recognized, you are receiving all the glory yourself. You're snatching the joy, you're snatching the sweetness away from God and taking it upon yourself. But when something good happens in your life, when you get a new child born into your family, when something great happens, when you see a sunset, when you see a sunrise, when you have a great meal, when God provides for you every single day and you give him the glory saying, I've not earned this, I don't deserve this, but this is a good gift from my God, the Heavenly Father, then you are receiving that gift with sweetness, with joy, and God gets all the glory. That's living a life of repentance. You don't deserve it, you deserve a tower to fall on you. You deserve God's anger to be poured out upon you because of my sin and your sin. And yet, in Jesus Christ, we get what we don't deserve. If you live when you receive good gifts in the spirit of repentance, just as when bad things happen, you live in the spirit of repentance, that is a sign that all of your life is marked by repentance. If you're not a Christian here this morning, did you notice verse 7? Verse 7, and he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? Verse 8, and he answered them, sir, let it alone. Leave it this year also until I dig around it and put some manure on it. Then if it should bear fruit, verse 9, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. This thing deserves to be cut down. It's produced absolutely nothing. It is literally, not metaphorically, a waste of space in the guy's garden, in the vineyard of God. And yet, here comes the vine dresser and he's pleading, just give me more time. Give me more time. I'd love to give it another chance. More resources. Friends, there is a great danger that when God is at work in your life, you can put it off and think, hey, I've got another year. I don't need to repent today. 
I've got another year before I'm cut down. I'm going to live my life when I'm older, when I've got more gray hairs than I have now, when I've done the things that I want, when I've been the captain of my soul, the master of my own fate for a bit longer, because life is pretty good right now, and I don't want to become a Christian because it's so constrictive and limiting. There's a danger that you can harden your heart, and all the fertilizer in the world will just bounce off the top. Your heart will be as hard as stone. Jesus says, give me another year. I'd love to fertilize, to mature, to nurture, to care for, to water, to be kind to this person so that there might be fruit of repentance. But there's a great danger if you put it off that you will harden your own heart. And so the Bible says from beginning to end, today, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that you can be rescued. Today is the day that if you trust in Jesus and repent for your sins that you can be safe eternally. So don't put it off. God's been working in the life in recent weeks, even this morning. Hear his voice and respond. Say sorry. Turn to Jesus. Trust him. Place your faith and lean upon him. Pour out your heart before him. Leave nothing back and cling on to him. That's what it means to be a Christian. And we need to do that today. If it bears fruit next year, fine. I'll leave it. But friends, you don't know if you've got tomorrow. You don't know if you've got your next breath. So can I plead with you? If you hear God's voice, even this morning, if he's been working your life, repent and turn to Jesus, even this morning, while we still can. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter your record. God's power in the blood of Jesus is sufficient. It's enough for you. And you have a clean slate, You have a future not to be afraid of, but to look forward to, that nothing would perish, spoil, or fade away. Let's pray. Father, we do uh, so often not recognize that we have a need to repent. We're just happy living our own lives. We're happy being the kings of our own castle, the master of our own fate, the captain of our own ship and soul. Please, I pray, would you sear onto our consciences the need we have to repent every single day. When bad things happen, help us to repent. When good things happen, help us to repent. Help our lives to be marked by repentance, seeing that in the blood of Jesus, on the cross of Christ, he received what we deserved. But because of Jesus, we receive what Jesus deserves. Help us to be amazed again and again by the nature of grace and the gospel, I pray. Amen. We're going to sing. It's a kind of a somber song. Um, and yet we can sing these words with joy. I was with some uh, students at Cornhill Training Course. It's quite fun on Friday afternoon up in uh, Borough High Street up in London. And uh, one of the uh, chaps was speaking on James, back into James 1, and uh, about joy in trials and how we can know that. And it was really helpful. Um, but I said, how would you define what joy is? So we can sing this with great joy. And uh, we got to an answer something like, joy is, because they were students, 
Joy is a non-temporal uh, understanding of happiness that doesn't pass and is not on, conditioned by your circumstances. So I said, has anyone else got a better definition <laughs> or a shorter one? Um, but simply this, we can know joy in our hearts. It can be commanded in the New Testament because we know Jesus. And it's not an emotion. It's not happiness that passes on how we feel. It's a deep-rooted joy in the work of Jesus Christ and the truth therein. 